Hi, you're up front with Richard Niles, and tonight I'm up front with one of the swingin'est voices and one of the swingin'est bands of the 20th century. The smiling band leader at the piano is Count Basie, and the very round man standing at the microphone is Mr. 5x5, Jimmy Rushing. Jimmy Rushing and Count Basie, this is kind of a, a match that started before we think of Jimmy Rushing as the way we think of him because of Count Basie, and that for Count Basie, it was a relationship that went before he became the band leader that we know of him to be. So in a certain way, they kind of came up together. Wanna see my baby, see my baby Jimmy Rushing's voice was, I think, unique. Very high-pitched. It had a sort of wonderful piping sound, which uh, could ride above the entire Count Basie band in full cry. I'm sure he loved playing with Basie's band. I mean, did Basie's band define rushing, or did rushing define Basie's sound? I can't think of one without thinking of the other. I think the Basie Band was really one of the miraculous bands of the era because they they started out in such less um, fortuitous circumstances than, you know, the Goodmans or the Shaw. The Basie Band is just one of the best statements of our musical culture. And I may be wrong, but I won't be wrong always. He used to tell me how in the early days of the Benny Moten Band, uh, he had to sing through a megaphone because uh, there were no microphones and he wouldn't have been heard. So he was used to shouting through a megaphone <laughs> over the brass. And I think uh, that fact was reflected in his style. He had that shouting style, a wonderful style, I think. That's veteran jazz journalist Chris Albertson. And if you had to be heard over a screaming big band, you might use a megaphone too. So how did Jimmy start singing up front of the Count Basie band? Here's music writer Will Friedwald. Count Basie was once asked what were the circumstances under which he hired Jimmy Rushing, and Basie always liked to say, I didn't hire Jimmy, he hired me. The two of them were great friends from way, way back before Basie had a band, and uh, when Basie was just a struggling piano player around the Midwest. Kind dreaming make me love you Be mean and you drive me away He knew Rushing from Kansas City way back. In fact, uh, they were in the Benny Moten band together. And whenever Basie did have the chance to lead his own band, obviously the first guy he called was uh, Jimmy Rushing as band vocalist. One of these old rainy days. New York music journalist and author Stephanie Stein Kreese. Did you ever dream lucky, baby? Jimmy Rushing was born in 1902, so he was actually a couple of years older than Basie. He had spent some time out on the West Coast. He'd been like a piano player and a singer in college, but his piano playing was sort of limited, and he could only play in a couple of keys, and people sort of encouraged him to uh, use his voice <laughs> more than his piano playing ability. Somebody and your woman. Here's jazz musician Dave Frischberg. In the eight or whatever years it was that I knew Jimmy, 
He never played the piano in, in front of me. I never saw him do it. But I heard this record on Columbia, and I said to him, Jimmy, that you play great. That sounds wonderful. You never play. He says, well, I didn't want to bring it up that I play. He said, I can only play in one key, and that's why I never do it. And I said, well, what key is that? And he said, the uh, key of E flat. I never forgot that. Kind of an odd key to be your only uh, choice at the piano, but that he told me he could only play in E flat. out west. Apparently he even worked with Jelly Roll Morton in the early 20s out in Southern California where he also kind of came into contact with some of the other New Orleans pioneers. But he returned to Oklahoma and the uh, Southern Midwest area which is such a cradle for the great big bands like Basie's and Benny Moten and the blues infused swing artists and swing musicians. Basie first came across Jimmy Rushing working with the legendary Walter Page and his Blue Devils. A little later on, Basie joined Benny Moten's band, where a lot of the Blue Devils became Moten's musicians. So we have to envision this as, as a much more scuffling existence than it was, but there was so much great, great music being made. And I think it was in about 1935 that Count Basie, Jimmy Rushing, and Hot Lips Page rejoined Benny Moten, you know, when some of them had been with him, then they went on to do other things, then they came back. And part of this was because the band was, it would have, it didn't have the steady kind of economic support that the white big bands did once they were really popular, like Goodman's or Dorsey's or so forth, even though that was a little later. You know, you kind of have to imagine that a lot of this was about survival. Well, they couldn't get a gig over here. They'd go to the next, you know, Kansas town or whatever town, and they wouldn't get paid, and they'd get stranded. You know, the, all these kind of stories are rife in the history of the Southwest bands. The sun don't shine in my back door someday. Veteran UK jazz legend Humphrey Littleton. The sun gonna shine. I think in the early days of the Basie Band, reading between the lines, I think they were almost partners. Certainly musically, they were almost partners. They emerged from the Benny Moten Band. So they, they both came, you know, from the same school, really. My first name is Jane. Second name I've never been told. You know, lo and behold, uh, the Benny Moten Band kind of came back together in 1935. But then Moten died, and Basie, you know, took on the leadership of the band, helped immeasurably by, you know, some of the people who'd been with him so, for so long. And I think at that point, you know, it was almost like Basie, Eddie Durham, uh, some of the others who were with them, they'd already forged this kind of riff-based, very blues-oriented, very rhythmic, very, you know, um, joyful fantastic music and rushing I mean I, I for me again it's just one of these combinations of not just the personalities but the sound itself you know rushing has this kind of high alto a lot of vibrato in his voice 
you know, this kind of larger-than-life blues feeling, and it fit the Basie style to a T. You know, you, you, sometimes when I listen to a lot of the recordings from the big band era, it's almost like the vocals are there, but they're not intertwined with the music. It's more like the vocalist is out front, you know, and the music accompanies the vocalist. Well, with Rushing and the Count Basie band, they were part and parcel <laughs> with every note that came out of that band. And every note swung. A riff is a repeated musical phrase often used in blues, and Basie and Rushing both knew how to milk a riff to maximum effect. But Jimmy Rushing's talents stretched way beyond the blues. Don't the moon look lonesome shining through the trees? Don't the moon look lonesome shining through the trees? He did not regard himself as a blues singer, although most people do. And I think that's, uh, that's something that you find with a lot of singers who, who sing blues as well as other things. Jimmy wanted to do a lot of songs, and he did a lot that weren't blues. Uh, but of course he had that quality of a blues shouter, as we call him, and that was undeniable. But he just didn't like to be called a blues singer. But there was a certain urgency to his voice, and I think his voice was just perfect for a big band. I don't think he was a blues singer in the sense that he was a, a sharecropper singing in the fields or anything, but I think he was a, an emblem of the urban blues sound. Uh, him and Walter Brown, uh, he was also a Kansas City guy, I guess. He was with Jay McShann's band. Those two voices to me just, uh, that spells out uh, blues with a big band behind you. And I think uh, Jimmy Rushing is the emblem of that, really. He's the guy. Sing for you yesterday, and here you come today. Sing for you yesterday, and here you come today. You can't love me, baby, and treat me that way. It wasn't especially bluesy sound. In fact, funnily enough, in his early days, uh, when he was very young, he didn't start as a blues singer. He started as a singer of, um, of popular songs. And it was an uncle of his who um, said to him, you know, if you want to um, earn money, you've got to get into the blues. Well, there's a lot of debate about what kind of singer he was, so why don't we get the word from Mr. 5x5 himself? From a rare archive recording, here's Jimmy Rushing on the kind of music he liked to sing. Jazz um, means rhythm. Makes you feel good, makes you feel bad, and... Um, it's just music, period, with a beat. Because uh, you can take the commercial tunes and you can play them with the beat. People will say that's jazz. You take uh, Stormy Weather, that's what you would call a bluesy number. But I don't think a person can really play the blues real good unless they feel it, because that's something that's a feeling. Carries a heavy feeling, soul music, as they call it. To me, jazz is the greatest thing of today. Don't you miss your baby from rolling in your arms? Don't you miss your baby from rolling in your arms? Don't you miss your baby from rolling in your arms? Every day you gone, your rollings carried on. 
he wrote quite a number of the blues lyrics and things that he sang with Basie. They weren't uh, very extensive. He had a limited re repertoire. He sang the same lyrics, sometimes in slow tempo and sometimes faster. So it, the odd verses used to keep recurring. She can call so easy and so doggone play. Rushing had a very rough sound, but at the same time it was a, it was a big sound, it projected, and it was very uh, specific. It was, it was not fuzzy. It was, you know, it went exactly where, you know, you could, you could understand everything he was saying. His diction was very precise, and um, it was clear that he grew up listening to Ethel Waters, which, you know, he did acknowledge. But once in a while you'll hear Jimmy roll his R's the way Ethel Waters would. So there always was a sort of influence of theatrical music on him, as well as, you know, what we think of as like a Midwest blues shouting style. But like I say, his diction was always very precise, and so was his intonation. I mean, he was very very much a studied musician, even though he, sound, he could sound very much instinctual, and at the same time very polished. He was a really great, great singer and a great musician on every level. Oh, he could generate the rhythm with what he was singing. He, he was one of those kind of singers. He sang lead, in other words. That era, he, was, he obviously grew up before there were microphones. And he was singing before there were microphones because he projected his voice just like that, as if there were not a microphone there at all. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the strangest things they say that I was born to sway. We found when he was uh, working with the band, it was like having an, another experienced and wise and uh, great uh, instrumentalist in the band. Because he would not only sing, he'd sing a few uh, st stanzas of the blues, and then he'd turn to the band when we were doing the instrumental bits, and he'd sort of uh, suggest all the riffs, and he'd, sort of, he'd be singing them half the time, you know, poop-pa, poop-pa, and all that. He was very much a musician singer in the sense that with the Basie band, I worked with a number of people, uh, Buck Clayton and Buddy Tate and so on, and they all said that he was as much a musician as the, uh, as the instrumentalists. long successful history, those musicians included some of the finest players in jazz, including Lester Young, Buck Clayton, Harry Sweets Edison, and Clark Terry, with arrangements by Frank Foster, Neil Hefty, and Thad Jones. Here's writer and musician Gene Lees. Basie was a kind of casual, almost laconic, almost lazy band leader. He sort of let the band do what it wanted to do until they did something he didn't want them to do, and then he'd tell them. He had the most amazing capacity to command quietly. Basie actually was a far better pianist than people realize. If you listen to some of his early records, he was a marvelous, fast stride pianist. When he had a band, he had the good judgment to realize that this was the instrument, not the piano. So he stripped his playing down to sort of bare essentials to filling in the harmony and playing that simple, laconic style that he developed. But that was developed as a band pianist. In his early days, he was a phenomenally fine pianist. Listen, my children, though love is king, I can get along. It was the perfect band for him. 
The swing was very important. He had this style. He really could swing, and no band swung like the Basie band. And that, that light rhythm it was just perfect. As long as there's a song to swing. It was a great combination in that Jimmy was essentially a blues singer who could also do ballads, and whereas Basie's band was also, essentially it was a blues band that could also do other kinds of music, including popular songs and, you know, different types of songs, love songs and ballads and what have you, but it essentially was very much a blues-based band, and so Jimmy Rushing was absolutely the perfect singer. Their association was a very rich one in that not only does Jimmy Rushing get to do the classic blues numbers, but also, just because of the vagaries of the popular music world, you get Jimmy Rushing doing uh, some songs that are so almost absurdly inappropriate. It's just glorious to hear him take this really juvenile kind of a song and make it into something really outstandingly deep and rhythmic and swinging and just, you know, something altogether different than what it was conceived of. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. We sang this little rhyme long ago in nursery time. Come, let's be kids again. Sing that old refrain. I think it was more the interplay of the development, you know, how the band would take like a simple riff and turn it into something really exciting. And, you know, his own energy would sort of rise with the performance. He'd sing something, the band would go bop, bop, ba da da da. He'd sing something, the band would play a little riff. And then their solos would be interspersed with some of his blues choruses. Musically, this was just one of the a fantastic bands. So I think they all just got a lot out of being with each other and maybe not so much learning with each other as just kind of developing the kind of energy and excitement that they did and that they generated, you know, coming from this, the Reno Club in Kansas City and then making it in New York and with so many of them still in the band was a fantastic coup. Largely speaking, it was a very friendly band, the Basie band, except when uh, they wanted to borrow money from Rushing. And then the friendship sagged a little bit on occasion. Uh, one or two people have said how, you know, if they were in straits and they went to Jimmy Rushing, you know, his wallet was quite uh, firmly zipped up. If you've seen pictures of Jimmy Rushing, then you'll know that his wallet must have been concealed in very, very big pockets. A huge man, he wasn't called Mr. 5x5 for nothing. He came to England uh, and to the continent on a boat. He didn't like flying too much. For obvious reasons, he had to be in a three-seater thing with two of the, of the armrests folded down. And they had to have an extension uh, seat belt, so that it would be the left-hand seat belt of the of the window seat, and the right-hand seat belt of the aisle seat, and then this long extension in between. Bay 
Stacy and Rushing had one of the longest singer-band-leader relationships, from 1929, if you want to include Benny Moten's band, to 1950, when the Basie band broke up. Rushing went on to make many solo recordings, and other band leaders were keen to capitalize on his talents. One of them was a somewhat opportunistic and typically tight Benny Goodman. I was at Jimmy's house one night for dinner, and Benny called, and I heard Jimmy on the phone, and he said, well, I'll, I'll do it if, if you'll play on one of my gigs for $75. And he said, I didn't think so. Well, it turned out that uh, Benny wanted Jimmy to sing on, at a concert that he was giving at Vassar, and he was offering him $75. And Jimmy said, you know, absolutely no. So he finally got whatever it was he got that he wanted. He was not afraid of people like Benny Goodman. He, you know, he knew, Jimmy knew who he was. And I, I went to Vassar with him for that concert. And we arrived there before Benny did. And there were several dressing rooms. One obviously was the star dressing room. It was the only one that had its own bathroom and so forth. And uh, it was obviously meant for, for Benny. But Jimmy said, we'll take that one. And Benny came, and in a very humble way, sort of said, uh, Jimmy, um, would it be all right if I used your bathroom? <laughs> and Jimmy just sort of waved him in. <laughs> he had a dog, by the way, that, a Cocker Spaniel, that was the widest Cocker Spaniel I've ever seen in my life. Always when I was at his house, when I left, you know, he'd stand in the door, and he filled the door. He touched both sides of the door, and standing <clears throat> to one side of him was the Cocker Spaniel <laughs> who filled <laughs> that whole space down there. Everyone really loved being around Jimmy, and musician Dave Frischberg got to share in some very special time with him when he served as musical director and pianist on his very last recording, The You and Me That Used To Be. We walked together in April rain The city streets were a country lane Have you forgotten the you and me that used to be? That was a, kind of a landmark in my life. Uh, I was asked to be musical director on the record. The producer of the record was Don Schlitten. And he asked me to be musical director, and he told me that Rushing had suggested it. And that really knocked me out. But then I was put in the position of trying to write arrangements for Jimmy, and I bravely went ahead and wrote the charts, even though the band included uh, Al Cohn and Bud Johnson, two of the best arrangers in the world. <laughs> And they were there as sidemen, and I was the arranger. I felt a little out of my depth. But I remember the feeling in the studio among all the musicians, Milk Hinton, Mel, Mel Lewis, Suit Sims, Ray Nance, and the others, and everyone was trying really hard for Jimmy because it seemed apparent to us that this might be Jimmy's last record. Though the organ grind the ragtime tune, a man a dime to see the moon. And it turned out to be his last record. Something tells me that he knew it, too. And I loved the way Rushing sang that day. It was so full of emotion. Have you forgotten the fun we knew? The crazy things we used to do? 
What has become of the you and me that used to be? I'll tell you one little story of him in the studio. I had my hands full. I felt responsible for the music because I was, quote, musical director. And I suggested a note for Jimmy to sing on the end of a song. Jimmy, I said, make, let's make a big ending on it. Why don't you sing? And I suggested a note that he could sing. And he looked at, he looked at me and he says, I know how to make a big ending. More than you'll ever know. He and I, after the musicians had left on the second day, we were alone and we played, uh, we recorded a couple of songs. Uh, one was uh, with just piano and voice. One was I Surrender Dear and the other was More Than You Know. We did one take of each of them because that's all rushing had. It's uh, all the energy he had left. It was a very emotional date for everyone. memories of Jimmy Rushing's last day in the studio. A singer who radiated an unparalleled joy and bounce, I hope you'll remember his days up front with Count Basie. Thanks to tonight's guests for jamming on a Basie riff. Dave Frischberg, Chris Albertson, Humphrey Littleton, Stephanie Stein Kreese, Jean Lees, and Will Friedwald. And thanks to the woman who reminds me of the me I used to be, producer Elizabeth Clark. Next week, Doris Day is up front with Les Brown. Until then, I know you'll want to join me same time next week here on Radio 2 for Up Front with Richard Niles. Maybe I'll cry. Maybe I'll sigh. If you grew Oh, then you'll never know.